Thank you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Genesis. I have some interesting thoughts that go through my mind at times. And um, one of the things I prayed many years ago, decades ago, in fact, was that God would give me a pastor's heart. You can preach, you can teach, you can visit, but loving the flock of God is a gift from God. And I ask God to give me a pastor's heart. And and I have to say, when I look out on all of you, and a few moments ago on all of us, um, my heart is just overwhelmed with love and gratitude for how God saves people and brings them into his family and brings us together and makes us one in Jesus Christ. And, and, and to know that we're going to share eternity together is just amazing. It, it's such a blessing. And as difficult as it is sometimes with language differences, it is good to make the effort to worship and share and praise together. Uh, that is just such a good time. And so, uh, praise God for our time this morning to see baptisms and to celebrate the Lord's table. Well, I promised you when we finished our study of the Minor Prophets that we would consider as an addendum, uh, not a tag-on, but uh, a few extra messages on the prophetic portions of these books, that we would look at the prophecies in the Minor Prophets relating to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then as we get toward Christmas, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I do when I start preparing a message is I imagine you sitting there. I imagine you guys, and I, and I imagine you, and I, and I think about the different things that, is, that are, are going on in your lives. And I think about some of the struggles people in our congregation are having. And I think about uh, the age range uh, that we have in our congregation. And one of the things that comes to mind is why... Should we bother with prophecy? Why should we study prophecy? In fact, it's very interesting that I, the, uh, a recent article in Christianity Today that was the cover article was on hipster Christianity. And it was an interesting article uh, that had to do with kind of a subculture of Christianity, predominantly among people, say, between 15 and 35. And one of the things that I was surprised to see is that there was a growing lack of interest in biblical prophecy. That uh, people in this particular subculture of Christianity were not terribly interested in a lot of prophecy. They were interested in, in green, in the ecology. They were interested in the arts. They were interested in uh, celebrating culture but not so interested in prophecy. I find that interesting because when I was in high school and college, prophecy in the 70s was the rage. Everybody wanted to know, when is Jesus coming back? And that's, that was kind of the, the focus of attention. But I think we've had 30 more years or so of this post 
Christian postmodern time that has brought us to kind of a lackadaisical spirit. And frankly, even if you don't believe that evolution is the way life occurred on this planet, and I hope you don't, but even if you don't, it has permeated our culture with the idea that this is all there is. Make the most of it. And whether or not you embrace the philosophy of origins espoused by humanists in the world, the fact is they have influenced the thinking of the church. And we're becoming rather stuck on the moment, as if this is all there is. And quite honestly, that leads to a very demoralizing view of life. In fact, the verse I chose as our keynote verse this morning, Proverbs 29.18, I suppose has been abused as much as any. But Proverbs 29.18 basically says in some translations, where there is no vision, the people perish. But the um, New American uh, Bible says, without prophecy... The people become demoralized, but happy is he who keeps the law. The gist of the verse is that people need a word from God in order to make sense of their life. And they need a word from God, even about the future, to know why we're here, where we're going, and what this is all about. It gives meaning and purpose. And when people lack the prophetic word, when they lack information from God about our destiny, then we lose purpose. We become aimless. Uh, and, and as that occurs, not only is there discouragement, but there is also moral and cultural decline. Why bother being good if there's no judgment? Why bother preserving culture if this is all there is? What's the big deal? I need to grab the most I can while I can because it isn't going to last very long. That's, that's the prevalent attitude. And the scripture says without that certainty of our destiny, we lose track of why we're even here. So I want to give you a few answers to why we should study prophecy as we begin. First of all, I've noted for you some very interesting statistics. There are about 1,800 specific prophecies in the Bible that occupy approximately 8,000 verses out of 31,000. Now, if you do the math, you find that more than 25% of the Bible is devoted to God telling us what's going to happen next. It's devoted to prophecy. And I would think just right off the bat that if God is going to spend 25% of His revelation telling us the future... We should be interested in it. It occupies a prominent place in the Scripture. Secondly, as we listen to what God says about the future, it gives us a sense of where we're going and what our purpose is. You know, when you, when you go to college and you study for pastoral ministry, they make you take a course called eschatology. And, and eschatology means the doctrine of last things. And I was always... Uh, I was a little surprised when I first took that class and the subtopics were listed in my syllabus, personal eschatology and racial eschatology. And I thought, what's that all about? And then I got in the class and I found out personal eschatology is what's going to happen to me in the future. 
And racial eschatology is what's going to happen to all of us as a human race in the future. That started making sense. And once I began to take that apart a little bit, I, I saw how knowing what was going to happen to me gives me a confidence and a certain fearlessness in living. You know, it has been said, and I think there's truth to it, you cannot really live until you're no longer afraid to die. You can't live until you're not afraid to die. As long as you are fearful about your destiny, you're always going to be holding back a little bit on life. But when you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, where you're going, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus is coming back for me someday. I have a guaranteed future in His presence. I know something of what heaven is going to be like from the Scripture. And when I have that kind of encouragement, it gives me a sense of destiny and purpose and makes me less fearful about my life. Because I know that if I were to die today, I would immediately be in the presence of God and welcomed there. I don't have to be afraid of that. But also I know that the human race has a destiny. It has a history. It has an appointment with God. We're moving toward a future that God has told us how it's going to turn out. And so, you know, perhaps many of you saw the the video clip or the news clip of uh, President Obama the other evening after the elections, you know. And he was just kind of flabbergasted. And he said, wow, this is a very difficult night. And uh, I think the, the term that he used was, I hope future presidents don't take the shellacking I took tonight to learn their lesson. I, oh, well, this is, this is pretty interesting. But, you know, people who put their hope in politics rise and fall on the crests of the political turns. But we know where history's going. And it doesn't matter what happens in the political arena. Yes, it affects our life. Yes, we ought to, to vote our conscience. Yes, but this is not, hope is not in government. Our hope is in Jesus. We know that we have a future. And, and we don't have to even be worried about world dictators and armies and wars and all of those kinds of things because we know, no matter how bad it gets, we know where it's going. Because God has given us the information about the end of times. I think one of the most important things, however, about anticipating the return of Jesus Christ, is that John tells us it actually produces within us a sense of godliness and holiness. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this in his first letter, We do not know as yet what we shall be like. That is, in detail. But we do know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. In other words, we're going to have a face-to-face with Jesus Christ someday. Isn't Isn't that an amazing truth? And when we see Him, we're not going to see Him in only His deity. We're going to see Him in His humanity, in His glorified, resurrected humanity. And when we see Him in that glorified state, we are going to be like Him. Not like Him as God, but like Him as the resurrected, glorified man. And we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him as He is. And John says, everyone that has this hope in Him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, the anticipation of the fact that I'm going to see Jesus someday, he's coming again, I'm going to behold his face, makes a difference in the way I live my life and draws me toward godliness and holiness. It makes me aware of the fact that there, there is a judgment. I am going to meet God, and although I won't have to face down my sin, praise God for that, I will have to give an accounting for how I've lived. And there's going to be a time when, <coughs> when I see Jesus, <coughs> and He's coming again for His people. And when that thought is uppermost in my mind, it guides my life on a daily basis. Friends, how blessed are those of you who love His appearing. That means you long for it. You're yearning for it. You're hoping for it. You want Jesus to come back. Todd wants to know if it's going to happen in our lifetime. Brother, I can't answer that for sure. Because the scripture says no man knows the day or the hour. But... Jesus said you can read the signs of the times. You know from the fig tree how things are going. And I'll tell you what, it sure looks like I could see Jesus in my life. Isn't that cool to think about that? And he that has this hope in him purifies himself. And yet at the same time, the scripture says, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. So that tension rests between longing to bring the the last person to faith in Jesus Christ and yearning for Him to come, and those two converge at a strategic moment in history. Well, as we move into our study of prophecy, I hope that gives you some background on why it's important, but as we move into it, I want to share a little bit with you this morning about some concepts that will give us a foundation for the specific prophecies that are in the Minor Prophets. The first is the relationship between the church and Israel in prophecy. Some people look at the Bible and they kind of take it apart in segments, you know, and and they talk about the the time of the Garden of Eden being the age of innocence, and they talk about the time from the, the fall of man until Noah as being a period of time, and then from Noah until Abraham, and then from Abraham to Moses, and Moses the coming of Christ, and then the, the church age after, the, after Pentecost, and then the return of Christ, and the, the tribulation, and the millennial kingdom, and, and, and they break up the scriptures. And that's a useful way to look at Bible history. There's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things that I used to hear growing up from those who were uh, what I guess I would call hyper-dispensationalists, and I think it was a misunderstanding that they brought to the table was that God saved people in different ways in different periods of time. And we need to recognize that all through human history, there has only been one people of God. There's only two categories of human beings in the eternal scheme. Those who are saved and those who are not. And all who are saved, all who are going to be in heaven... Even the Old Testament saints, beginning with Abel and, I don't know, possibly Adam and Eve, perhaps. The Bible's not 100% clear on them, but I think there's implications that they would be. And then going through Noah and going through Abraham and others and, and going through all the Jews of the history of the time of Moses and the kingdom, 
all of that, everyone who is saved is going to be there for one reason. Jesus Christ died for them on the cross of Calvary. There is no other way and no other name given among men under heaven whereby people can be saved. People in the Old Testament were not saved because they offered animal sacrifice. Why do I say that? Because the writer of Hebrews says, The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, ever. can't be done. So they were not saved because they offered an animal sacrifice. They were saved because in offering that sacrifice by faith, they were believing God, and they were looking, whether they fully understood it or not, they were looking for a time when the Son of God, the Lamb of God, would come and be the sacrifice and shed His blood on the cross. And that would be the basis of their redemption. And so all of the Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross. And all of us look back to the cross. But the cross is the pivotal moment in history. And throughout human history, there's only been one people of God. Those who have put their faith in Him through grace for salvation. No one was ever saved by law-keeping. The whole point of the New Testament is it didn't work. The law could never save anybody. No one was ever saved by works. They were saved only on the basis of faith. The other thing we need to recognize about the ancient history of Israel is that God in Israel was teaching lessons. You know, in the New Testament, when Paul says in the book of Galatians, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. What is that fullness of time? When everything necessary had been done leading up to the moment. In other words, all of the revelation had become complete leading up to the moment of Jesus Christ. And what was that? First of all, it started in the Garden of Eden. It requires blood sacrifice to cover sin. Leaves don't cut it. God had to slay animals and cover their sin. Abraham, come out from your people and from the land that you live, and I will make of you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The promise of a chosen people through whom would come Messiah. Moses, on the top of the mountain in the wilderness, receiving the law of God, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of those books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And as he received the law of God, here's what God said. Moses, be careful to instruct the people to build the tabernacle exactly according to the plan I have given you. Tell them not to deviate in one little point. Everything is important. Why? Because it was a picture, a symbol, a graphic representation in tangible terms of what is true in spiritual reality. What do I mean by that? Very briefly, that Old Testament tabernacle, for example, had three parts. It had an outer court, it had a holy place, and it had a holy of holies. Jesus, when he was standing in the area of Herod's temple, the Jews asked for a sign. And Jesus says, this is the sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews made fun of him and said, are you kidding? This thing has been under construction for 40 years. Look at these stones, they're massive. You're a crazy man. You can't build this temple back in three days. But John says parenthetically, but this Jesus spoke of his body. Not that building, but his body. 
which he would raise from the grave three days after he had been crucified. And the point that he was making is the tabernacle in the wilderness was a symbol of my body. You're looking at my outer court this morning. Did you know that? This is my outer court. It's what you see. But inside of my outer court lives me. I'm in there. In, in the holy place where my soul is, my mind and my will and my emotions. And deep in the core of my being is a place where God is living in my life in the holy of holies. The Shekinah presence of the Lord dwelling in me. I am his temple. I am his tabernacle. In the New Testament era, having Jesus having paid the price, the Holy Spirit can come back into my temple. And all of that Old Testament prophecy, all, I mean, all of that Old Testament ritual and worship was simply a type of the spiritual reality that is in Jesus Christ. All leading up to the fullness of time when Jesus would, through his blood, give birth to the church. So Israel forms the backdrop and the church is the spiritual reality. But... God has a place in his heart for Israel. And that's the thing that we need not forget, because God made certain promises to Abraham that would never be forgotten. And one day, according to the Scriptures, when Jesus Christ returns and raptures his church, he will also return as the Messiah of Israel. And every Jew living at the time in the land of Palestine, Palestine, not Palestine, that's down there, Palestine, every Jew that is alive near Hoffman Estates will see him as he comes as their Messiah. And, and Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced and believe. Because God has a future for His people that will result in the conversion of every living Jew at the time when Messiah breaks through the sky and begins to come as their mighty deliverer. There is restoration and convergence of the church and Israel together in the future. Well, you can read all about that. If you have a pen, I'm going to give you some scripture passages that are not in your study guide. You might want to jot them down. You can read them and study them a little later today. Ephesians 3, 1 to 10 speaks of the Gentiles being fellow heirs with, with uh, the Jews. Romans eleven twenty two to 29 tells us that the, the Gentile church is a great mystery that was hidden from the ages. But in these latter days has been revealed that God was going to include a whole host of Gentiles. See, we have a tendency to think we're it. <laughs> but uh, three-fourths of the Bible is focused on Israel. And we get to participate in the people of God. You know, it's just it's kind of interesting because for 2,000 years it's been the Gentiles. And we think, oh, well, we're the ones. We're, we're, we're the focus. But God's focus has been on one whole tree. His carefully groomed and planted olive tree, and we're the wild branches that have been grafted in. 
You know, and that's the mystery that, that many did not see in the Old Testament. Romans 11, 22 to 29. And then Colossians 1, 27 tells us the real heart and core of the mystery. As we begin to look at the reality of the church, it's Christ in you. The hope of glory. The real essence of that mystery. Well, there are a couple of things that uh, I want to show you in Genesis. I ask you to turn there in your Bibles and I'd like you to, to look there now. What is the future of Israel as a nation? These Jewish people that we've spent the last 13 weeks studying about in the Minor Prophets. First of all, God owns all there is. Listen, make no mistake about it. God is the one who owns the earth. The earth is His and all it contains. People exchange deeds. They buy property. They buy and sell and they accumulate possessions and they think they have something. Friends, you have nothing. Did you know that this morning? There's great liberation in that. You have some things on loan to you as a steward, but you really own nothing. You can have the deed to, to the, the tallest building in Chicago. You can have the deed to the most land in the West. You can have you, whatever. And you can have a heart attack and die. And your deed has zero meaning. You still go on living and you have to answer to him who really owns it. You know, God owns the earth. Nations exchange boundaries and borders and... And we're fussing over a few of ours, and they fuss over them in Europe, and they fuss over them in Asia and Africa. But when it comes down to the final straw, God owns all the land. It belongs to Him. No one can claim it, really. And He made a covenant promise that had no contingencies. What do I mean by that? Many of the promises of God have a contingency. For example, there's a promise in Philippians chapter 4 that comes immediately to mind. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a promise with a contingency. You say, I like the peace part. I want that peace. I want that freedom in my heart. I want to feel that peace. Okay, how do I get it? Well, there's a criteria you have to meet. Stop being anxious and pray and give all of your concerns to God. And when you do that, as He lifts those burdens from you and comes to you, He will bring you peace if you really turn them over. So there's a contingency to that promise. But God made a promise to Abraham that has no contingency. There's no criteria. It's found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. Genesis 15:18, And it says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenanite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. In other words, you name it, all the people groups that live in that territory. Now, 
What is the territory from the great river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates? Well, you know what the great river of Egypt is, right? It's the Nile. That's the great river of Egypt, no question about that. And we know where the Nile is, right? It runs through Egypt, (coughs) going toward the Mediterranean, and it empties into that uh, (coughs) Nile Basin in the southern, southeastern section of the Mediterranean to the west of the Red Sea and the Arabian Peninsula, the the Sudan and all, uh, not the Sudan, but the uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula and all of that. You know where the Nile is. Do you know where the Euphrates is? It's over there by Baghdad. It is a long way to the east. In fact, that whole area covers the whole eastern shore of the Mediterranean. It incorporates the Sinai Peninsula. It incorporates Saudi Arabia. It goes into Iraq and Iran. Boy, this really ticks the Arabs off when they begin to hear this because it's very frustrating that this promise is there that, that the Jews are counting on. It encompasses land that is virtually what used to be called the entire Fertile Crescent and goes throughout all of that section of North Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, uh, Southwest, that, that section, Southern Europe. I can get my compass bearings here in a minute. Huge. Here's the point. Israel has never possessed that whole territory in its entire history. Israel has never possessed it. Even under Solomon, which was the greatest expansion of the, king, uh, of the kingdom of Israel, it has never possessed that territory. What did God mean? He says to your descendants, I have given this land. And he defines the boundaries. Well, let me back up a little bit and remind you of when this promise occurred. God had told Abraham, and you heard me tell this story before in a different context, but the chapter 15 uh, is concerned with it. God had told Abraham, I want you to prepare a sacrifice. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here's the sacrifice. I want you to cut a bunch of animals in half, and I want you to lay them on either side of a trough, a ditch. And, uh, and Abraham knew what God was doing. The reason he knew what God was doing was because that was a custom of his day that leaders would, would do to make the most solemn covenant. <clears throat> Two leaders would come together of tribes or, or, or a group of people. They would come together and they would make a treaty or a truce or a covenant. And if it was the most solemn kind, they would cut a bunch of animals in half as a sacrifice, lay them on either side of the trough of, of a ditch, and the two leaders would walk between the pieces. And as they did so, the blood would get on their feet and, and their, uh, the robes of their garment that were flowing out of the sacrifices. And they would both come out of that experience with the blood on the hems of their garments. And the blood would be a witness, a testimony And it basically said this, if I don't keep my word to you, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. And here's the proof that I will keep that. I've walked through the blood of the sacrifice and I am willing to be cut in half if I don't keep my promise to you. I mean, that's just about as solemn as you can get, don't you think? So God told Abraham to prepare this sacrifice, which he did. And he laid the animals out. 
And Abraham's thinking in his mind what anyone would have thought at that moment in time. We're going to make a covenant. We're going to make an agreement. God and I are going to walk through the pieces. And then Abraham goes into a trance. He's sitting off to the side and he goes into a trance. And in the trance, God begins to explain to him what's going to happen in the future that his people are going to go to Egypt, but he's going to bring them back. And he, and he goes through all of these things. And then he says, as the sun goes down, verse 17, it was very dark and there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. Abraham never walked through the ditch. But the flaming torch represented the spirit and presence of God who did. And what God was saying by that to Abraham was, I am the only one that this promise depends on. It does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on your faithfulness. It doesn't depend on your life or what you do or what you don't do. I am making a covenant with you, an agreement, and I alone am responsible to keep it. That covenant was an everlasting covenant. You can read all these other passages in Genesis that I've referred you to. That covenant was an everlasting covenant with the descendants of Abraham that that land was theirs from God forever. And it was not contingent on their obedience, on their following the law, on their being good, on their not being idolaters, It wasn't contingent on anything. It was a commitment from God that this land belongs to you and to your descendants forever. Because God promised through Abraham that out of his seed would come Messiah. And because of that, his people would always have in his heart a special place. Secondly, God made a promises to Israel that regardless of where she goes or how greatly dispersed, until the day he brings her home for good and personally reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, that he will always bring her back to this promised land. Look at Isaiah with me. Isaiah is just a little past Psalms, about the middle of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 11, and I want you to see some really cool stuff. If you haven't read these passages before, these are just really special. Isaiah chapter 11, look in verse uh, 1 with me, if you will. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by his ears. But with righteousness, in other words, he'll be omniscient, (laughs) he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked, and the righteous will uh, will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now, who do you think that is? The righteous branch from the root of Jesse. Who do you think that is? That's Jesus Christ. I mean, there's no question. We're all agreed on that, right? Listen to when he's going to do this. And, verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with a baby goat. 
the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Get the picture in your mind, okay? We can just pause here for a moment. Can you see Dad saying to his six-year-old, Son, go take the animals out to pasture. And he, and he heads out to the pen where there's a lion and a wolf and a leopard and some goats and some sheep. And here's this little six-year-old leading them all out to eat grass. When, when has that ever happened? When has this ever occurred on the planet? And he says, a nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. How many of you moms would let your little baby play in front of the cobra's den? Anybody? Okay, no takers on that right now. But there will come a time when that will be nothing more than a, than a rattle toy or a mobile over the crib. Now, here, here, you can have this cobra. Beautiful cobra to keep you company. Uh, don't you see that there's something changed here pretty dramatically? And it says... And the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. There will come a day when Jesus Christ stands on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, and in that time, all of nature is going to be restored. Back to what it was in the Garden of Eden, when there was no survival of the fittest, but all of the animal kingdom ate grass and vegetables, and there was peace and and beauty and quiet, and the King of Kings is on the thrones, and all the nations will come. When has that ever happened? Obviously, it is a future event. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. I'm just going to highlight a verse or two from that. But Zechariah chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 2, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Verse 3, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. The mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Old men and old women will again sit in the streets, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the street. If it's too difficult in the sight of the remnant of these people, it will also be too difficult in my sight, says the Lord. I am going to save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. God has promised that He is going to return to Zion, to Jerusalem, and He is going to personally reign and be their God, and they will be His people. That has never occurred in the history of Israel until this day. Finally, God promised Abraham that He would make him a blessing and bless all the nations of the earth through him. Friends, the thing I want you to take away from this morning is that prophecy is important for us to contemplate and consider 
First of all, because it is the blessed hope of Jesus Christ that impacts the way we do live our daily lives. If you sense in your heart that Jesus Christ is coming back, it will change the way you live. We need to have that hope in our heart. We also need to recognize that we live in crazy, bizarre times. We are approaching the end of the age. I think we're getting closer. I don't know if it's going to be in my generation or some of your generation, but I think we're getting closer. Well, I know we're getting closer because every day that passes we get closer, but how close? I don't know. Could be very soon. And, and when Jesus comes back, he has an interest in Israel. It should affect the way we pray. Pray for the peace of Israel. It should affect the way that we evaluate uh, politics and, and foreign policy. Because God says, those who bless her, I will bless. And those who curse her, look out. Israel is not going to pass from the scene of this earth until God has fulfilled His purposes in her. And that does not mean this morning that everything the nation of Israel does today is right. I, I think some Christians get all bollocked up with that. And they think, oh, well, whatever Israel does is okay. No, if it's inhumane, it's inhumane. God does not love Israel because they're such wonderful, nice people that, that are so gracious and kind and loving and sweet. That's not why He loves Israel or any other people. He loves Israel because of Abraham. And he has made promises to Israel that he will keep. He does not approve of everything Israel does. Look at the Old Testament. Look at all those prophets. <laughs> she was always off target. And spiritually, she's off target today. But God still, nonetheless, has made promises to the nation that Zechariah says one day when he comes back, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. They will see Him. And it will dawn on them. This was Jesus, our Messiah. We missed Him. But in that moment, they will believe. And in that moment, they will turn in faith to Him. And whoever is living at the time will be born again. Father, I pray this morning that you would drive your word home to our hearts, that we would uh, take it very seriously, that we would be interested and uh, encouraged about the prophecies that you have given us concerning the future. And we ask you to bless it to our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.